And welcome to the Table of Perspective, where we take a deeper look into how the internal narrative of an individual determines their response to life itself and all it entails. Today, I will be your host, Bula, and a book that I'm going to be sharing is called The Tattooist of Auschwitz by Heather Morris. So we'll go straight into it right after the first song. Do enjoy. I love you, Jesus. I worship and adore you Just want to tell you Lord, I love you more than anything Yeah Just want to tell you, Lord, I love you more than anything. I lift my hands in total adoration unto you. You reign on the throne, for you are God and God alone. Because of you, my cloudy days are gone. Thank you. I can sing to you this song. I just want to say that I love you more than anything. Yeah. Come on, say I lift my hands in total adoration of you. Come on, say it. You reign on the throne. You reign on the throne. For you are God. Wrap me 
if you have ever heard any of my podcasts before, I do quite a few books concerning the Holocaust and um, Nazi history. I'm merely fascinated by how the will of man and the purpose of man really not only comes out at the point of the cusp of death, but also how that can translate into how you live your every single day life. So if it is so important that at your state of death, it is something you're willing to hold on to, whether it's a moral, a value, a principle, a belief, um, then it should influence every single other part of your day-to-day life. And um, it's just kind of a privilege to be able to take a look into this group of people that were in this really terrible scenario where their lives were at stake and they were having to work in these concentration camps and they were starved and it was really the most awful thing that could have happened. But we as as people that have lived past this are able to take a look into how they have found purpose and meaning in certain things. And majority of the time it was religion and belief. It was belief in God specifically. Um, so I have the the privilege of being able to read into that. So that's something that really fascinates me. But I recently read a book called um, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And it was such a wonderful elaboration because not only was he a psychiatrist, so he had some medical um, terminology that he used and as well as referencing to his own patients. Um, But I would never have picked up this book specifically for myself um, called The Tattooist of Auschwitz because although it is based on on a true story, it is somewhat fictional. And another thing is I don't really care much for um, romance or for, um, I don't know how to put it or how to term it. It is really like romance stories. I don't really care much for that, not, not in my, my movies or in my books. And the first line on the back of the book is, I tattooed a number on her arm and she tattooed a na- her name on my heart. And I actually received this book as a gift for my birthday um, from a very good friend. And so I was really excited to read it. However, it wasn't something that I usually would read. But having said that, I have been so enamored by the way that this book is written that it's really the kind of book that kind of consumes you into the story. With a lot of the other books that I read, it's not fictional in at all. So you're reading it from a perspective of the writer who have maybe endured the experience, but it's not a story that really sucks you into it and you feel as though you're there. Um, so that's been quite enjoyable. But just some of what the information of the book is. Um, it says that in 1942, Leil Solokov arrived in Auschwitz-Birkenau. He was given the job of tattooing the prisoners marked for survival, scratching numbers into his fellow victims' arms in indelible ink to create what would become one of the most potent symbols of the Holocaust. Waiting in line to be tattooed, terrified and shaking, was a young girl. For Leo, a dandy, a jack of the lad, a bit of a chancer, it was love at first sight. And he was determined not only to survive himself, but to ensure this woman, Gita, did too. So begins one of the most life-affirming, courageous, unforgettable, and human stories of the Holocaust, the love story of the tattooist of Auschwitz. Times literally supplement, uh, Literary Supplement says that it is a touching and redemptive tale of love and selflessness. Uh, Sunday Times actually said that it was sincere and moving. 
Jeffrey Archer had mentioned that um, they will be reading this book in a hundred years' time. Um, and Graham Simerson, the author of The Rosie Project, um, said that it was extraordinary, moving, confronting, and uplifting. And I recommend it unreservedly. Um, so there are other books in the series called uh, The Three Sisters, also by Heather Morris, Geet, uh, Silica's Journey, as well as Heather Morris's Stories of Hope. Um, so in the front page, starting at the author's note, I think that this is something that uh, I probably ought to mention. It says that this is a work of fiction based on the first-hand testimony of one Auschwitz survivor. It is not an authoritative record of the events of the Holocaust. There are many accounts that document the facts of the terrible story in far more detail than can, just, that, than can be justified in a novel, and I would encourage that the interested reader seek them out. Lael encountered many more guards and prisoners during his time at Auschwitz, Birkenau, where are, then are described in these pages. In some instances, I have created characters that represent more than one individual and have simplified certain events. While some encounters and conversations here have been imagined, that the events in the story occurred largely as described is not in doubt and the information presented as fact has been sourced and researched. So that was just kind of um, important in terms of the context of the book. Um, and the another thing about um, Heather Morris, it says that it is, she's an international number one best-selling author who is passionate about stories of survival, resilience, and hope. In 2003, while working in a large public hospital in Marlborn, Heather was introduced to an elderly gentleman who, quote-unquote, might have just been a story worth telling. The day she met Leil Solokov changed both their lives. Their friendship grew and Leil embarked on a journey of self-scrutiny, entrusting the in innermost details of his life during the Holocaust to her. Heather used Leil's story as the basis for The Tattooist of Auschwitz, which has become one of the best-selling books of the 21st century, uh, selling more than 5 million copies worldwide. Her follow-up novel, Silica's Journey, has sold more than a, a million copies worldwide as well. Um, and it's it's given to the memory of Leo Solokov and it says that thank you for trusting me and Gita's story. Um, before I go into it, I would just like to say that although I have read several books on survivors of the Holocaust, um, and like I said, I also am not necessarily interested in the romance or um, I guess that perspective of the human uh, analysis. Um, Sigmund Freud had done a study on more so man's desire rather than man's willingness to meaning. That was something that was mentioned in Viktor Frankl's book called uh, Man's Search for Meaning. And that was kind of interesting how it tied up in the timeline of me reading both of these books because this is more focused on the human aspect of the desire of man. While they're experiencing the same terrible, terrible circumstances, there is this human aspect of of. of of man, of, of human beings, that I've never really paid any attention to entertaining at all. Um, so being able to read it even through a half fiction, could you say, uh, is really, really interesting. So going into the prologue, um, it starts as follows. Lael tries not to look up. He reaches out to take the piece of paper being handed to him. He must transfer the four digits into, onto the girl who holds it. There is already a number there, but it has faded. He pushes the needle into her arm, making a four, trying to be gentle. Blood oozes, but the needle hasn't gone deep enough and he has to trace the number again. She doesn't flinch at the pain, Lael knows he's inflicting. They've been warned. Say nothing, 
do nothing. He wipes away the blood and rubs green ink into the wound. Hurry up, Pepin whispers. Lael is taking too long. Tattooing the arms of men is one thing. Defiling the bodies of a young girl is horrifying. Glancing up, Lael sees the man in a white coat slowly walking up the row of girls. Every now and then, he stops to inspect the face and body of a terrified young woman. Eventually, he reaches Lael. While Lael holds the girl's arm as gently as he can, the man takes her face in his hand and turns it roughly this way and that. Lael looks up into the frightened girl's eyes. Her lips move in readiness to speak. Lael squeezes her arm tightly to stop her. She looks at him and he mouths, shh. The man in the white coat releases her face and walks away. Well done, he whispers as he sets out the tattooing, remaining the three digits, five, six, two. When he is finished, he holds onto her arm for a moment longer than necessary, looking again into her eyes. He forces a small smile. She returns a smaller one. Her eyes, however, dance before him. Looking into them in his heart, he seems simultaneously to stop and, uh, sorry, his heart seems to simultaneously stop beating and begin again, pounding, almost threatening to burst out of his chest. He looks down at the ground and it sways beneath him. Another piece of paper is thrust at him. Hurry up, Lael whispered uh, Pepper again. When he looks up again, she is gone. So in chapter one, it speaks about uh, in April 1942, Lael rattles across the countryside. This is more of a perspective of how things had gone to the, gotten to this point. Um, so it says, keeping his head up and, uh, and himself to himself. The 24-year-old sees no point in getting to know the man beside him, who occasionally nods off against his shoulder. Lael doesn't push him away. He is just one among countless young men stuffed into wagons designed to transport livestock. Having been given no idea where they were headed, Lael dressed in his usual attire, a press suit, clean white shirt and tie, always dressed to impress. He tries to assess the dimensions of his confinement. The wagon is about two and a half meters wide, but he can't see the end to gauge its length. He attempts to count the number of men on his journey with him, but so many heads bobbing up and down, he eventually gives up. He doesn't know how many wagons there are. His back and legs ache. His face itches. The stubble reminds him that he hasn't bathed or shaved since he boarded two days ago. He is feeling less and less himself. When the men try to engage him in conversation, he responds with the words of encouragement, trying to turn their fear into hope. We stand in shit, but let us not drown in it, he says. Abusive remarks are muttered at him for his appearance and manner. Accusations of hailing, uh, of hailing from an upper class. Now look where it's got you. He tries to shrug off the words and meet the glares with smiles. Who am I trying to kid? I'm as scared as anyone else. A young man looks, locks eyes with Lael and pushes through the scrum of bodies towards him. Some of the men shove him on his way through. It's only your space if you make it yours. How can you be so calm, the young man says. They had rifles. They had pointed rifles at us and forced us into this cattle train. Lael smiles at him. Not what I was expecting either. Where do you think we're going? It doesn't matter. Just remember, we're here to keep our family safe at home. But what if... Don't what if. I don't know. You don't know. None of us knows. Let's just do as we're told. Should we try and take them when we stop since we're outnumber them? The young man's pale face pinched with confused aggression. His balled up hands box pathetically in front of him. We have fists. They have rifles. Who do you think is going to win the fight? The young man returns to silence. His shoulder is wedged into Lael's chest and Lael can smell oil and sweat in his hair. 
His hands drop and ha hang limply at his side. I'm Aaron, he says. Leo. Others around them tune into the conversation, raising their heads towards the two men before lapsing back into silent reveries, sinking deep into their own thoughts. I'm going to end here for the second song that we're going to go straight into, and then we're going to wrap things up as it speaks a bit more about the friendship that Lael comes into with Aaron. And um, then we'll go right at the end and go into a bit of the last chapter. So do enjoy the second song. When I see the sun up here and I'm just going to go into a little bit of the second chapter where it speaks more about the kind of friendships that you, they were able to build together. There is some vulgar language. I mean, they were in a concentration camp. It was really, I don't think that morality was anything on their minds at the time. Um, but I'll just read from some of the second chapter and then we'll close right off. So it speaks of on page 24. 
that the command was directed at Leo. So Leo is now starting to work at different sections in the camp. First, he was given um, really hard labor. Then some, somehow he had gotten into working on a roof with some of the other members because they had been transported to a different concentration camp. So it says that the command is directed at Leo. Looking around, he spies a ladder going up to the roof. Two prisoners squat there, waiting to receive the tiles which are being shuttled up to them. The two men move aside as Leo clambers up. The roof consists only of wooden beams for supporting the tiles. Be careful, one of the workmen warns him. Move further up the roof line and watch us. It's not difficult. You'll soon get the hang of it. The man is Russian. My name's Leo. Instructions later, okay? Sorry, introductions later. The two men exchange a look. You understand me? Yes, Leo replies in Russian. The men smile. Leo watches as they receive the heavy clay tiles from the pair of hands poking over the lip of the roof, crawl to where the last tiles were laid and carefully overlap them before moving back to the ladder for the next one. The Russian had been correct. It's not difficult work. It isn't long before Leo joins them in accepting and laying the tiles. On the warm spring day, only the hunger pains and cramps prevent him from matching the more experienced workers. After a few hours pass, they are permitted to take a break. Leo heads for the ladder, but the Russian stops him. It's safer to stay up here and rest. You can't be seen while this high up. Leo follows the men, who clearly know the best place to sit and stretch out. The corner where stronger timber was used to reinforce the roof. How long have you been here? Leo asks as soon as they settle down. About two months, I think. Hard to tell after a while. Where did you come from? I mean, how did you end up here? Are you Jewish? One question at a time, the Russian chuckles, and the younger, larger worker rolls his eyes at the ignorance of the newcomer, but yet to learn his place in the camp. We're not Jewish. We're Russian soldiers. We got separated from our unit, and the Germans caught us and put us to work. What about you? A Jew? Yes, I'm part of a large group they brought in yesterday from Slovakia. All Jews. The Russians exchange a glance. The older man turns away, closing his eyes, raising his face to the sun, leaving it to his companion to continue the conversation. Look around. You can see from up here how many blocks are being built and how much land they have to keep clearing. Lel pushes himself onto his elbows and observes the vast area contained within an electrified fence. Blocks like the one he is helping construct stretch out in the distance. He experiences a jolt of horror at what this place might become. He wrestles with what to say next, not wanting to give voice to his distress. He settles back down, turning his head away from his companions, desperate to, be, to bring his emotions under control. He must trust no one, reveal little about himself, and be cautious. So I'm going to end here. Um, it goes more into his interaction with the Russian soldiers. It also speaks about different people that come into the concentration camp to work and they get paid um, and then they, they're able to, to leave. They're free to leave. So they, at this time in, in, in this specific time period, we're just recruiting basically everyone that was willing to participate in this. And then obviously, you know, at the end of the war, when... Germany lost, there's a separation of, okay, now how do we treat people because the Jews were the, you know, the people we're supposed to be against, and suddenly you have the Russians and you have everyone working against each other, and the Jews are the innocent ones, and they're the ones set free, and it's just, it's really bizarre to read, but it is quite insightful, especially to understand the behavior and the nature of man, the way that, it, that people think.
and how they actually interact in the environment, whether it's uh, traumatic or whether it's stressful or whether there's joy and there's experiences. And it's just really insightful to be able to to share in that. So that's all from me. I do hope that this was somehow helpful and that um, you might pick this book up to to give a read. I know I do a lot of uh, history on <laughs> Nazis and, and wartime, um, but it is very, very insightful information. So that is all from me. I do hope that you have a lovely day further and Cheers. Active FM radio has never, ever been better. Haven't you heard? It's the Netflix of radio. They say, what's happening, man? It's your boy, GS. Violation Bible study with the cops. I met a dope boy that told me he would do it like. I told him he can bring it back if he just do it right. Before the switch, baby girl wanted a bigger name. God turned the diamond to a quarter, we seen bigger change. God took the wheel, we switching bigger lanes. Got the word in my scope, that's a bigger aim. And we don't believe in theories, he the bigger bang. He the king of all kings, forget a bigger name. I could turn the red, I used to live on the edge. Ain't hear nothing they say. I read the Bible in place. Yeah, I could have been dead. Yeah. Or somewhere off in the face. Uh-huh. Now I just dance on the day. You can see work with the legs. Leg nothing work. but go in my head. Go. I had the bottle of sauce. Go. I signed a deal with the Lord. Go. Now I just rep for the boss. Go. I cannot do it tomorrow. tomorrow. Homie, I live for the day. Today. If you're not coming here to work, yeah. then homie, just get out the way. Hey, back, back. I preach a word like a bishop. bishop. Yeah, I can answer the issue. Bishop. No compromise to life. life. You know the game of fish. I was a dude in the middle, middle. but now I'm the dude in the front. I done got used to the heart. Hey, hey, no limits yeah. with the roof gone. Uh, Red letters got the Bible looking too strong. No limits with the roof gone. Red letters got the Bible looking too strong. No limits with the roof gone. Red letters got the Bible looking too strong. No limits with the roof gone. Red letters got the Bible looking too strong. Hey, when we pull up to the spot, they ain't repping for the king. Tell them we can show them how to get their roof. And to the enemy, the haters and the doubters and the fakers, two emojis with the home. We too scared. No limits with the roof gone. Red letters got the Bible looking too tall. No limits with the roof gone. Red letters got the Bible looking too strong. No limits with the roof gone. Red letters got the Bible looking too tall. No limits with the roof gone. Red letters got the Bible looking too strong. No compromise. Enemy, the haters and the doubters and the fakers. Tell them we can show them how to keep their roof gone. Two emojis with the arm, but we too strong. No compromise. And just in case you didn't know, I'm doing